1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp, thanks for tuning in. Happy to have you. This week on the show, we are talking about confidence, how to build it, what to do if you don't have it, and much more. And yet again, I'm blown away by the fact that we've all heard about confidence. We know things about it. But our guest this week breaks it down in such a simple, understandable, yet profound way that you can specifically improve your confidence in any area of your life where you feel necessary. One of my favorite things he talks about is how so much of confidence is due to the memories you choose to focus on. Think about that for a second. Our guest this week is Dr. Nate Zinser. He is the author of the brand new book, The Confident Mind. A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. Dr. Zinser is the director of West Point's Influential Performance Psychology program and has spent his career training the minds of the U.S. Military Academy's cadets as they prepare to lead and perform when the stakes are at their highest. In addition, he has coached world-class athletes, including a Super Bowl MVP, numerous Olympic medalists, professional ballerinas, NHL All-Stars, and more. He has been a consultant for the FBI, the U.S. Army, and the Fire Department of New York. He earned his Ph.D. in sports psychology from the University of Virginia. Cannot wait for you to get your ears on this one. If you enjoy what you hear, we need your support. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast. We're not just asking for support. We're giving you things such as ad-free episodes, access to our guests, and more patreon.com slash smart people podcast. Okay, here it is, our interview with Dr. Nate Zinser as we talk about his book, The Confident Mind, a battle-tested guide to unshakable performance. Enjoy. We're at a unique time right now. The Super Bowl just wrapped up last night all right i'm not sure when this episode will air but as recording it just ended and i have to know how'd you feel about the outcome as a sports you know enthusiast psychologist
2: how'd you feel about it well i would have liked to have seen the underdog win um then that's just me but it's very clear that the team that played the best football won the day um they they got out front a little bit early Then it looked very, very iffy right into the fourth quarter. Um, When Mr. Stafford threw that interception in the end zone, um, it really looked like we had a momentum shift, and momentum is huge um, in these team games. Um, But the Rams did what they needed to do late in the game, Um, and importantly, they they played well enough to overcome their mistakes, and that is what happened. You gotta do in a big game. You've got to play well enough between your mistakes to come out on top. So that you know, and and the idea is that you just you don't beat yourself. You don't you don't do the things that get in your own way. And you're gonna make some mistakes. I mean, Stafford's a really fine quarterback. He threw a, a most untimely interception. Yes, um, he did. But he had to overcome that, and that is just whole. F- function of how effectively the guy thought in those minutes in that game. You know, if we go back to the Bills and Chiefs game, each of them felt like they had
1: one play left and somehow most always pull it off. How do they get to that situation and not just crumble, not just think, if I don't do this perfectly, that's my season, potentially my career, potentially my legacy. What allows them to not fall or succumb to that thinking?
2: In a word, practice. You actually have to practice thinking in a way that allows you to take pressure off yourself so you're not beating yourself. You have to put yourself mentally in some of those catastrophic situations and mentally rehearse being comfortable in them and delivering. It doesn't just happen out of the blue. People do not magically rise to new levels of performance. That's for the movies, okay? That's, that's in the Walt Disney movies where, you know, the hero rises up. That's the sort of Rocky Balboa mystique. Um, but that's not how it works. People don't rise to new levels in critical moments. People settle back and default to their level of training, their level of physical training, and their level of mental maturity. So the answer to your question is practice.
1: And you know, it's interesting. When you said that, I said, okay, practice, that makes sense. Have you been there before? But you're actually talking about mental practice.
2: Well, I'm, I'm talking about mental practice and physical practice. I mean, you have to actually be there and challenging yourself and feeling a little fatigued so that you are in that same physical place that you're probably going to end up in, in a big game. And then you've got to mentally practice, calming yourself down, getting the play call, seeing the field and executing as if you were in a backyard throwing the football around.
1: Is that the key to it? Is the key essentially removing the stakes to an extent, removing the, the pressure as if it was just
2: a given day? Well, you either remove the pressure and treat it like a pickup game, or you treat it as a great, big, huge game, which you are in, and henceforth, you are a big, huge player. Either way, the pressure comes off you. You can treat it as nothing, or you can treat it as, hey, this is the Olympics. This is the biggest thing in the world, and I'm in it, which means, by definition, I'm the biggest thing in the world. Either way you go, it works for you.
1: I know you've coached athletes, as we mentioned, and and teams and things. And I wonder, when you get to the professional level, what do they need coaching on when I'm talking about mentally? Because I feel like at that point, don't you go, I'm here for a reason. What else is there to learn, especially when it comes to
2: confidence? Oh, you would be surprised, Chris, at how similar the need for confidence training is for people who have been in the professional ranks for a few years, who had successful college or successful junior hockey careers, they're still people. And like all of us, they have fears and doubts and worries and insecurities. And the good ones acknowledge that and work at it and make their mental toughness a priority. They, they work on their mentality just like they work on their foot speed, cardiovascular endurance, and tactical understandings of all the X's and O's.
1: Well, and for those listening going, great, now let's learn about it. We are going to get into how do we build that. That is, of course, the purpose. It's the purpose of the book that we're here to talk about, The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance, But of course, we got to get some background, and we have to understand some things. So right now, you're sitting at West Point. You teach at the U.S. Military Academy. There's actually a special division you're part of, is that correct, on how to deal in pressure situations?
2: I run a program of instruction in the key mental skills that lead to confidence despite setbacks, concentration amidst distractions, and composure during stress and the cadet experience is stressful. These people are being trained to handle a lot of responsibility. These people are being trained to lead. Unfortunately, they have to be ready to lead in the ultimately stressful human situation. Ground combat, bullets flying. Um, At the same time, they are learning to be Students, this is a curriculum comparable to a lot of Ivy League curricula. This is also a place where we have over 20 Division I athletic teams. So it's a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of intensity, and I'm just trying to equip these young men and women with the tools that will allow them to flourish in those conditions.
1: We've been talking about athletes, and it makes sense. You say, look, you either treat it like you're in the backyard or you realize you're there for a reason. But underlying all that is things like, well, this isn't combat or this isn't rocket science or this isn't brain surgery. Those are the three we hear about most. In your case, it is that. It is life or death. How does this training differ when you're talking to somebody who might go in the battlefield where you have to say this is life and death as opposed to it's an athlete
2: who it might be their career, but it's not their life? The underlying understandings of how your thought process affects your mood, which affects your physical state, what your body does, which of course affects how you execute. That process applies whether we're talking about, you know, kicking a field goal to win the Army-Navy football game or whether we are talking about communicating to your various fire teams when the bullets are actually um, in the air. You have to be in control with how you think about yourself. You have to be able to put yourself in a mood that allows you to be effective in your situation. So, yes, the conditions are vastly different, but so many of the underlying principles are the same. And because those principles are the same, it's more and more and more important to understand them and to apply them when indeed the bullets are flying. What is
1: the number one thing you try to instill upon both athletes and those on the battlefield about training their mind?
2: The number one principle is that it's a choice. You get to choose how you think. And your responsibility to yourself as a performer and your responsibility to the team that you are either a member of or a leader of is to make sure that your thoughts about yourself, about your team members, about the situation that you're going into, are consistent with the quality of performance that you want to have in that situation. And that principle applies wherever you are. You've got to be certain that you are clear-headed, somewhat calm even though your heart is pounding your the butterflies are turning over in your stomach the adrenaline is flowing it's your responsibility to be in control of yourself so that you can execute near the top of your ability rather than having the situation dictate to your state of mind you've got to be dictating to the situation how much of your mindset is
1: dependent on experience
2: Uh, a great deal. But it's a question of which aspects of your experience, which moments from your past are you identifying yourself with? Which moments from your past are you using as a sort of template for your future? We all have a vast stock of memories But I think we have to be selective about them in terms of which ones we take most seriously, which ones we invest the most emotion into, because those are the memories that are going to sort of serve as a foundation or a platform for what we do in the present and into the future. Again, it's a choice. Wow. I got to
1: tell you, that was one of the goosebump moments for me. I can imagine the most successful people have technically failed more than the least successful just because more attempts. We all know the Gretzky quotes and the Jordan quotes. I get that. But you're now making me wonder if a big differentiator is which moments the successful are choosing to remember as opposed to the unsuccessful. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead
2: and ask Gretzky or Jordan or Babe Ruth if he was still alive, you know, when you think about yourself as a player, what memories flash into your mind? And those guys are going to think about their breakout moments, their championships. The entrepreneur, who if he's got his mind right, is going to think about the projects that did pan out, the lessons that he learned from the projects that didn't pan out. But it's the lessons that he learned which helps him or her leapfrog into the future. It's it's having a kind of selective amnesia that is functional in terms of creating optimism and enthusiasm for oneself. I don't think that point can be overstated. I I don't think I I quite agree with you. I, I find myself overstating it every day, many times. Well, and here's
1: why. I mean, everyone listening has these things they replay. You know, there's two plays that come to mind when I think about my sports career. And one was when I was batting and one was when I was fielding. And it just so happens I was an excellent fielder and a terrible hitter. (laughs) Uh, The one batting was I was about seven years old. I got hit by a pitch in the elbow, right? Broke my elbow. And for the rest of my career, call it a career, for the rest of my time, I was scared to hit. Didn't matter. Didn't matter where, when, what, right? That was always the thing I remembered. This could hurt. Fielding made this play, ground ball, took a bad hop, barehanded, threw got out at home, won the game. That's the one I remember fielding. And guess which one I tend to be better at. So everybody has those moments, whether it's the speech you gave it at, at, at an assembly or you know the, the project you executed or the game you are in. Just asking yourself, when I think of who I am in those moments, what memories do I have? Probably fairly telling about not only
2: how you view yourself, but how you perform. That's insane to me. Absolutely. And if it was important that you become a better hitter, we would have to tweak your memories about hitting and and look at that one unfortunate moment where you got your elbow busted up as pretty much a fluke. We would have to dredge your memories for moments where, you know, you were patient at the plate and you worked the count and either got the walk because you were using your eyes right, or you made nice contact with the ball and drove it over the shortstop's head. Hey, everybody, Chris here, taking a quick break for our sponsor this week,
1: Golden Poppy Herbal Apothecary. Listen, you have probably by now heard about gut health. Of course you have. You listen to this show. We've been talking about gut health for years. Your digestive system is the foundation of your health. If it's not working well, your body can't absorb the nutrients it needs from your food, and down the line, that can lead to a host of health issues. And yes, there's a lot of things that can help with digestive health, but one simple, natural, and extremely impactful thing you can do each day is incorporate digestive herbs into your life. I bet that's not something you've thought about yet, and that's why this is important. Golden Poppy Herbal Apothecary has created an herbal tea blend specifically for helping ease your digestive woes. Their tummy tea has herbs such as meadowsweet, fennel, chamomile, peppermint, plantain, cinnamon, and calendula. Did you catch all those? I mean, yes, some of these you've heard of, but for example, did you know meadowsweet is often used for respiratory tract infections, headaches, heartburn, and inflammation? Or what about the fact that calendula contains a huge amount of flavonoids and antioxidants that prevent cell damage from free radicals. And because you listen to this show, we have a special offer, as you know. You get 20% off your entire purchase by going to goldenpoppyherbscom slash smart people. Head on over there, check out their tummy tea, stock up on it. When you have guests over, it's a really nice touch have handcrafted, small-batch, organic and natural teas that stick out instead of the store-bought junk. GoldenPoppyHerbs.com slash smart people, 20% off your entire order. Let's get back to the show. The reason I love this analogy, and I love where you're going with it, is because of this. Too often, expert advice stops at generalities. And I can say that having talked to 400 experts, this is the next layer of how to change that choice, why it matters, what it does. This is executing on the generality of it's a choice. And that is what makes it work and makes it actionable. And that's why I love exactly what you're talking about here. Thank you. Let's go into this a little more. Let's take any example where you are working with somebody who is stuck in. That rumination of negative outcomes leading to fear, leading to behavior that comes from fear. How do you work on mindset? Like walk me through that process. If it were my, you know, 15 year old self trying to be a better hitter. And, and you say, okay, like you have, this is what you're thinking of going up to the plate. And in your head, you know, this is where we have to get Chris. How do you then do it?
2: Well, first I got to get Chris a little bit out of his head out of the uh, perhaps long-standing habit of worrying about your performance, uh, I just got to get you to be, pardon the expression, neutral, you know. Let's just clear everything. Let's just clear everything. Let's just clear everything, okay? And now, what's important to pay attention to when you're at the plate? And you'd have your own answer to that question, whatever it is. I think we need to just practice Mentally tuning into that. Can you feel your feet in the batter's box? Can you feel your hands on the bat? Can you feel the position of your stance? And now let's just watch a couple pitches come over the plate. Yeah, nice pitch right in the strike zone. Let's imagine one maybe low and away. Let's imagine one maybe high and tight, and you got to lean back a little bit from it. But let's just let's just be clear and let's not expect anything let's not be thinking about anything let's just get to a state of just kind of passive receptivity as to what's going on all right <sighs> okay are we are we in a kind of a neutral, are we in sort of a neutral gear at this point all right now let's step away from the batter's box all right and let's think about how cool it feels to hear the crack of the bat when it makes contact. And let's think about how cool it It feels to sort of drive your hips through the ball and feel the follow-through of the bat and then hear your team cheer when you have made solid contact. All right, let's get into that. It's kind of cool. All right, now let's go back. Let's step back into that batter's box. Let's see that pitcher on the mound and let's feel a sense of eagerness about studying the pitch, reading the pitch, trusting your swing, Well, let's make some nice contact with the next pitch. I'd, I'd work that way, you know. And probably in the same session, I'd make sure that there was some kind of memory in that 15-year-old mind of yours about when you have made contact with the ball, about when you, when you have made good decisions at the plate. Um, one of the stories I tell in the book is exactly about this, from the perspective of a guy who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Tony Gwynn, who made a, who made a practice of videotaping his at bats throughout you know his career, and he would edit the videotapes. he put all the pitches where he made solid contact in, with the ball on in one video file. He'd take all the pitches where he made a good decision at the plate, whether to hold off or whether to go for a pitch, he put that in a separate file, and then he took the other ones where he made a bad decision, make that a separate file, and then delete it. Delete it. Because the last thing he wanted to do was remind himself or or watch himself on video. And as he put it in the article I cited, The last thing I want to do was watch myself looking like a fool swinging at somebody's curveball. It's that kind of memory that we're working with. I love that. All right. So how does that
1: then lead to better performance? You know, I think we can make assumptions, but what is it about just changing our perspective, changing our belief
2: that actually leads to physical outcomes? Because changing the way you think literally changes your brain and your nervous system. I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard the term neuroplasticity, referring to the fact that that big hunk of gray matter between your ears and all the gray matter that's going down the middle of your spinal cord and all those neural circuits that extend from your spinal cord out to, your, to the tips of your toes, etc. That that communication system and that hard drive that sends messages out through the communication system is ridiculously malleable. You can change it. You change it through experience. You also change it through intention. You can build different and more effective neural circuitry through repeated thoughts. And we, a lot of people have suspected this throughout human history, but really only in the last decade or two do, have we had the technology to actually see brains at work and look at, oh, this person did this kind of mental training, And look at that part of the brain that is different now than when she started. Because the process of envisioning a particular skill, whether it's playing the piano or whether it's uh, swinging a tennis racket, that part of the brain is now bigger and brighter than it was before she started doing this. Neuroplasticity. Your nervous system responds to you. So use that for Pete's sake. Don't think that you don't think that you're a victim of the nervous system that you've got. You may have the nervous system that you have based upon your past experience. But at the moment, the nervous system you've got is a predictor, a forcing function on your future. Is it
1: fair then to simplify it to this idea, which is if you remember the times when you had positive outcomes? in whichever endeavor you're in, and you think through those, you focus on those, you concentrate on those, and you practice those, then you are likely to build the neuropathways, the physiology that led to those outcomes, which therefore give you a better chance of achieving them. So the mind really is trying to do its best to replicate whatever outcome you're thinking of. And that's what leads to performance is
2: that fair that That's a fair statement that is a fair assessment of what goes on. You tend to get what you think most about. you tend to get what you think most about and what you think about with the greatest degree of emotional content. Emotional emotion is like glue that sort of solidifies a particular neural neural circuit so make sure that you are injecting emotion and allowing yourself to feel a little bit of excitement even over small improvements if indeed you want more of those small improvements sure we've been talking about sports but let's take it to
1: something everyday call it the the work environment or just life right life right now really stressful i mean it just is Let's imagine you're at work or something where the emotions feel so vivid and so distracting and so immense that in that moment, when people say, You can choose your thoughts here. You've done this before. It's not that big a deal. One, you want to knock them out. But then two, it feels like there is no choice. How do you get out of that to then make better decisions?
2: Slowly and carefully. You know, it, when someone says to you, oh, it's no big deal, just change your mind, I would say, hey, it is a great big deal to change your mind. Do your level damnedest at it. Be as good as you can be right now with that choice. As hard as it is, you might not get it perfectly, but you might just be able to take a little bit of an edge off it, you know. It's not about being perfect at this all the time. Nobody is. Okay. And I tell so many people so many times a, uh, a week look, everybody is dealing with this. You're, you know, you nailed it, Chris. These are stressful times. Everybody is dealing with distraction, worry, COVID restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the political situation at the moment, um, the foreign policy situation at the moment, I mean, these, are, these are these are tough times. Just understand that everybody is dealing with it, too. Your opponents and competitors are dealing with it, too. Which means if you can be just a little bit better at it than they are, you create an advantage for yourself. So let's look for that advantage OK, don't think for a minute that you've got it rough and that everybody else is, you know, smelling rosy. No, they've got it, too. You know, I will tell this to somebody who is competing, you know, against um, a top 10 opponent, a top five opponent, a, a, a returning national champion. Pressure's on that guy, too, right? Right. Pressure's on that team. Pressure's on that gal. OK. Go be the best version of yourself. Force that person to deal with you. They're going through their own share of difficulties. They got fatigue. They're cutting weight. They've got their own stresses. Think of it that way.
1: Yeah, that
2: makes sense. The book is on confidence.
1: How does what we're talking about relate to confidence and how do you define confidence in the first
2: place? Well, I define confidence as a sense of certainty about yourself that allows you to do what you know how to do, what your body's trained to do without you having to think your way through it and be very conscious and analytical while you're doing it. Confidence is a sense sense of certainty that allows you to execute more or less unconsciously. I see the ball, I hit the ball. Rather than thinking, okay, it's uh, this is the count, and this is what he's been doing. So I think it's likely to be this. That, 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 oh, I got to make sure that my heels are dug in just right, and all that extra analysis can gum up the airwaves. Can put just a whole lot of extraneous stuff into your eyes. It'll slow down your recall of the right response. It will interfere with the smooth coordination, okay? If the pitch feels right, you swing at it. You know, for the golfer, you pick out a target. You look at the air. You pull out a club. You think how you want the shot to be. You step up, you hit the ball. Right. You keep it that simple. Good golfers do that. Not so good golfers allow themselves to, you know, stand over the ball and remind themselves of the six technical tips that, you know, their teaching pro has been given them over the last years. And that almost never enhances their feel, their rhythm, their swing. Right. And to be fair,
1: what gets in the way is not the physical act. It's the mental act. That's what is just being driven home. Aside from things like practice and experience, which we know and we just covered, is there anything in early childhood, in the way we're raised, in our socioeconomics, in our race, gender, that impacts confidence despite the other things we discussed, action, experience, practice, things like that?
2: Well, I think there are a whole lot of messages that get drilled into us um, just on a, you know, social and cultural level, you know. The idea that you have to be serious about yourself if you're going to play well. Now, there's a certain truth to that, but continue, you know the idea that seriousness and thinking about what you're doing is the one and only path to success has a downside once you've learned a few fundamentals and once you've acquired a decent level of skill. At that point, overthinking what you're doing is a detriment to performance. And when I talk people through, you know, think about what you went through as a kid or an adolescent or a young adult learning your craft, you know, improving your skill level, improving your fitness level, because you wanted to be good at something, you know. Yes, you had to put in a lot of physical effort. You had to identify certain weaknesses. You had to have a mindset of making change happen. You had to be quote-unquote serious about yourself in order to improve your fundamentals, in order to improve your fitness. But while you were being so serious, you pretty much developed as a side effect the tendency to analyze, judge, and criticize yourself across the board. Now that analysis and judgment and criticism can be a very good uh, way to be in certain times of your training and preparation but you can't bring that into a performance situation that will just tighten you up as we've been discussing so you have to actually practice maybe separating that you know workhorse mentality analyze judge criticize maybe you need to practice a good part of your practice just seeing what's there accepting what ha- what happens always being your own best friend always being supportive because that's the way you want to be in the game in the match in the actual presentation so there's there's a way of setting yourself up to perform more confidently because you practice being your own best friend, your own biggest fan, looking for the things you do well, reinforcing that, having already done the self-critical part where you really look at your weaknesses and you make some corrections, but you got to trust those corrections and you got to practice trust in those corrections because that's the way you want to be when you're in the spotlight. Hey, Chris here for a quick break. You
1: know, I was talking to my brother the other day and he listens to the podcast and he said... Dude, I'm always confused on how you remember all this stuff. Like, how do you remember what a guest said three years ago and then tie it into an episode today? And it's funny because I've noticed some episodes, my mind is super sharp and everything's flowing and others, things get lost on the tip of my tongue. And now I know that a lot of that is due to my body chemistry. And the reason I know that is because when I take the neurofuel supplement, I don't lose words on the tip of my tongue. Our sponsor this week is Natural Stacks. And before we go any further, if you go to naturalstacks.com slash smart people, you'll get 50% off NeuroFuel. It's worth a try, trust me. The reason it works is because the premium natural ingredients in here work as fuel for your neurotransmitters, supporting greater signaling between brain cells. So there's that word, natural, right? What is it? Well, here are some of the ingredients artichoke extract, which numerous studies show significant increases in normal mental performance, including cognition, long-term memory, wakefulness, and neuroprotection. There's also forskolin, which is derived from a plant and has been widely used in traditional Ayurvedic medicine to also positively impact the neurons. You can go to their website and read all of this. One of the reasons I like NeuroFuel and natural stacks in general is their transparency. They are the world's first open source supplement company powered by blockchain technology that provides ingredient traceability and third-party lab test results for every single batch. So if you have to be at your best, if you have to stay sharp, try out Natural Stacks for 50% off by going to naturalstacks.com slash smart people. That's 50% off NeuroFuel by going to naturalstacks.com/smartpeople. Now back to the show. It's bringing up so many things for me about the difference between kids and adults. One of the things I would imagine based on what we talked about is it's harder for adults to build confidence where they don't have it than it is for children.
2: I, I think in a lot of cases that is very true because the adults have such a greater backlog of experiences from which they can either grow or from which they can retard themselves you know oh i've got 20 years of experience okay well what are you taking with you from that experience what are the th- conclusions you're drawing about yourself from all those experience the kid has relatively little experience so hopefully he or she can develop a pretty op- mystic sense of him or herself. Um, and, you know, mom, dad, coaches, this is really where it comes down to effective communication. Um, experience in and of itself is neutral. It all depends on what aspects of that experience one tends to focus upon. I can speak for myself, but I believe I see it a
1: lot in others. Adults feel like they shouldn't fail. They they should be able to pick things up and do them, which is a crazy thought. We don't ever believe that as kids. I mean, I watch my kids run around. They'll fall right on their face. They don't go, oh, why'd I do that? They're like, well, let's try that again, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if we are unable to be new or bad, at something and build that level of practice, we can't ever anticipate becoming more confident in it.
2: I think that's very true. You know, watch a little kid who's learning to walk. You know, and they will fall, and it might hurt. You pick them up, or they pick themselves up. They haven't yet developed the self consciousness of, oh, geez, Billy down the street can already. Uh, make 10 steps in a row, and I can only make four. There must be something wrong with me. Um, They haven't developed that habit of comparing themselves ineffectively. But boy, do we see that with, uh, you know, adolescents. I see that all the time in the 18 to 22-year-olds here at West Point. And I see it, you know, in lots of adults, you know, outside of this. If we kind of go back and and think about what we've been talking about, the idea of
1: choosing almost which memories you want to believe in and how those thoughts about how you perform can shape who you are, literally down to the neurons and how you perform, at what point does it cross the line into arrogance? And is there a downside to that? Or do you want the arrogant guy covering
2: your six or at your quarterback? Um, I think you want a healthy degree of arrogance you know a healthy degree of arrogance to the point where yeah i think i'm the best player on the field i think i'm the best uh person in my platoon to perform a certain job that's an but that's an inner feeling it doesn't have to come out in the form of boasting or bravado or you know self-congratulation uh, that's when arrogance becomes a turnoff to your teammates. You know, there's there's a big difference between the quiet confidence that we see, you know, in so many great, you know, uh, great performers. Uh, you know, Drew Brees is a wonderful example, a humble guy who lets his play stand for him. Um, the Manning brothers are a great example. I think generally. Um, the Williams sisters were wonderful about that. They didn't stand up and boast and call attention to themselves. But if you were to ask them quietly, um, "Do you think you can win the Wimbledon championship this year?" Both of them would say, "Well, yeah. I, I believe I'm that kind of player. I got the talent. I've put the work in. I think I can beat everybody in the world. And that's not, that's not a boast, you know." It's just, yeah, that's just kind of the way I think.
1: What do you wish the average person, they're not going out on the battlefield, they're not playing in the Super Bowl, what do you wish they knew about confidence
2: and how to build it in themselves? Number one, it's a choice, and it's a choice that you can make day in and day out, many, many times a day. Two, it's very situation-specific. Confidence is not this all-encompassing quality. Once you have it in this part of your life, you're going to have it across the board. No, confidence is very situation-specific. The good news is that you can develop it for any specific part of your life or a mul- a multiple parts of your life. You can develop it for any- every- anything. And third, that it's not a one-time dramatic fix That suddenly transforms you from a nervous Nelly to, you know, confident Charlie. It's not a one time thing. There's no uh, fairy godmother who's going to sprinkle you with pixie dust and transform you into, you know, a winning machine. It's an ongoing, daily, even hourly process. And if you're willing to look at it that way, you have the opportunity to set yourself up for considerable success. As one West Point cadet put it, um, late in his cadet career, when he finally realized these things for himself, he said, you know, the whole process of self-confidence is an ongoing war of attrition. There's no decisive victory that you can win which ends the war. There's no, the way I, you know, th- there's no atomic bomb that you can drop on the enemy that ends; they surrender, never going to come back. We kind of live with some, some of us with those long historical memories. No, the idea that it's an ongoing process. Don't let that scare you. As I've said before, everybody else is facing that ongoing process too. Right. Let's just see how good you can get at it. So if you can understand that it's a choice, that it's very specific, and you can make it work for you, but you're going to have to be in it for the long game, those are three things that I hope your listeners can take away. I can't help but to wonder, because I'm going, if it's this, why aren't we better at it?
1: And there's two things that are jumping out to me, aside from, I think, our natural predisposition to overweight the negative. Evolutionarily, we're more weighted to say what can kill us than what can be the best thing on the planet. So that takes practice. But what about the things that are new? You know, I've got, I'm in a new role, new job. I got a new deliverable. I've never done it before. I don't have anything to draw on. I'm probably going to be bad and therefore I don't have confidence.
2: What do I do then? I think you got to look at yourself in the mirror and saying, why do I think it's probably going to be bad? Why don't I give myself at least as many constructive, energizing visions of the future as I do for those visions of myself falling flat on my face? Why don't I see if I can at least get those to be 50-50? You know? It's funny when you talk you know, envisioning to people, they say, oh, yeah, I'm not good at visualizing nine times out of ten, they're really good at visualizing. They're just good at visualizing all the wrong stuff. Uh, It's kind of funny, you know? Yeah. You're right that we should acknowledge a certain negativity bias in human beings, you know? We spent the vast majority of our history living in rather uncertain environmental conditions, you know? So we develop neural pathways that emphasize pessimism, but we also survived in those uncertain environments through cooperation. So there are indeed neural pathways devoted to optimism in our brains. We can exercise both of them. It makes me think that the difference
1: between confidence and self-doubt comes
2: down to Simply the thoughts we tell ourselves. Absolutely. The thoughts we tell ourselves about our past, the thoughts we tell ourselves about ourselves in the moment, and the thoughts we tell ourselves about various, as of yet, non-experienced futures. What I can't get over,
1: and you're the perfect person to ask this, is all of that makes sense if it's not going to kill us. (laughs) But when it could kill you. When your brain is screaming, don't run towards the bullets. Don't jump on that grenade or whatever. I, I'm horrible at these analogies because I've never been in that situation. So I'm asking the experts. How do you change the hardwired human regard for life when the only choice is you better do it or it's probably a worse outcome? How do you do it on the battlefield?
2: Well, you don't just do it on the battlefield. You have to practice You have to practice being in the moment, reacting effectively to a a battlefield situation or a a, a simulation for, for an athlete. You have to practice being in highly competitive, highly charged moments and making good choices. And again, as I've said, you being in control of the situation. You know, there are some things that you are never, that you can't simulate, but you got to do as good a job as possible at simulating what you can. You know, I, I, I ask people to imagine all kinds of things that could go wrong in the Olympic trials, right? Formulate a response to those things that could go wrong. Have a plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, in your back pocket in case circumstance B shows up, circumstance C, circumstance D, and that gives you a sense of, okay, a lot of things could go wrong, but here's how I'm going to handle that one, here's how I'm going to handle that one, here's how I'm going to handle that one, and this is part of your overall mental preparation. Um, I've done that with a few folks. And then they've actually gone to the Olympic trials and had the weirdest things happen to them. Yet because they had been in the habit of practicing a good response to some other weird things, they were able to generalize from that previous practice into the moment where this super weird thing happened and they were
1: fine. That's funny. That's a good point. It's like when you watch people, maybe it's an athlete or something, how are they prepared for that? That, that? That's a one in a million thing. That's what makes them top of their game when oh, you're preparing for the one that, in a
2: million. Yeah, th- that That's what we have to make. We have to make sure that our practice, our rehearsal, our training is very realistic. You know, um, our field training for soldiers. OK. Hey, we want to accomplish this. Oh, but this bad thing just happened. Now, what do we do? Let's be ready for that. Okay, now we're moving towards our objective. Oh, something else happened. Something else went wrong. What are you going to do? Okay, you just lost this capability. You, your, your communication's just, you know, um, cut out for the moment. And now you're all alone. What are you going to do, kid? What are you going to do, lieutenant? What are you going to do, ranger school candidate? These are the trainings that you get into. And so you learned and developed the habit of hanging in in the moment. Even though the moment sucks, you, you've developed the capacity for hanging in the moment, doing what you can in the moment with a little bit of optimism out there that, yeah, this can work out. Yeah, this can work out. There's a phenomenon called the Stockdale Paradox, which comes from the experience of a man by the name of James Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for a very, very long time. And he was you know he was later liberated, became an admiral in the Navy, and the stocktail paradox refers to the fact that, boy, you have to embrace your situation in the moment. This is a bad situation. This is a bad situation. I've got to cope with a bad situation right now. Keep level-headed, do the best I can, but I'm going to, at the same time, maintain a vision that this is going to work out. We're going to be rescued. We're going to survive this. We're going to eventually get through this and find peace and fulfillment and some happiness in our lives. But in the moment, right now, ooh, it's bad news. But we gotta deal with it. You know what that reminded me of? Victor Frankel. That's absolutely. Right? Yes, it it is absolutely the the legacy of Frankel's book, and I recommend that to everybody. Because you all have the last human freedom to determine your state of mind, regardless of circumstance. And your circumstance can be awful. You know, God forbid any of us ever have to experience anything remotely as awful as what Frankel experienced, as what Admiral Stockdale and those other residents of the Hanoi Hilton experienced. God forbid. I mean, that's awful. But we can learn from them. We can learn from them how to do the best in our lives right now, in our experience. And it's a choice.
1: So, Doxy, yeah, I loved it. Excellent way to close it out. Really appreciate it. And again, if you love this, we scratch the surface. Check out his new book, The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. Wanted to ask you, last question, where can we find you? Are you out there? Are you, are you writing blogs, all that? Or is it just
2: the book's what you get? Well, the book is what you get. You can also contact me through my website, Um, Ever since the book launched, I've gotten a whole lot of interest from folks who are looking for individual coaching on this, from business leaders who are looking for coaching for their teams. So, yeah, folks can get in touch with me that way. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Chris, for inviting me in, and my best wishes to all your listeners for a, a really good 2022.
0: This week's guest was Dr. Nate Zinzer. Dr. Nate's book, The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance, is available wherever books are sold. This week's episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support us, you can head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.